Welcome to Succession Stories. I'm Lori Barkman. As an exit value planning and M&A advisor, I call myself the business transition Sherpa. This podcast guides entrepreneurs from transition to transaction, from building value in your business to letting go. What do I do when I'm not hosting a podcast? I work with owners to maximize business value with my firm, small.big. And as a certified mergers and acquisitions advisor with Stony Hill, I guide you through the complex process of selling your company. Tune into Succession Stories for weekly insights to reward your hard work and avoid succession regrets. Is this the year to sell your company? Don't leave your exit to chance. Stony Hill Advisors works with entrepreneurs like you to get ready for what may be the biggest transaction of your life. Learn what your business is worth by visiting stonyhilladvisors.com slash podcast. Welcome to the Succession Stories Rewind, highlighting a few of my favorite clips from recent episodes. This show guides entrepreneurs, next generation leaders, and business owners how to approach the challenges of business transition, M&A exits, and succession. Listen in as I talk with my guests about how to build a more sellable business and ways to avoid transition pitfalls. If you'd like to talk about your business transition, I'd love to meet you. Visit meetlauriebarkman.com to schedule a call. Whether you're a longtime listener or new to the show, subscribe to Succession Stories in your favorite podcast player and on YouTube so you don't miss any episodes. You can always go back and listen to earlier shows in the catalog. I hope you enjoyed today's Rewind episode of Succession Stories. My conversation with Jeffrey Feldberg, co-founder of the Deep Wealth Experience, hit so many high notes, it was challenging for me to choose just a few clips. A key question underlying this episode is how do you master something you've never done before, like selling your business? Jeffrey and his partners founded Embanet, an e-learning company, and when the time came to sell, they rejected a seven-figure offer. Two years later, they sold for nine figures. Jeffrey shares insights on this remarkable achievement and how having an excellent team of trusted advisors helped maximize his business value. This clip focuses on the realization that the skills used to start your business won't be the ones used to sell it. If you haven't heard the full episode yet or want to catch all of the entrepreneurial exit planning wisdom drops again, Give episode 105 a listen. You know, Lori, we were just so inexperienced at that time. As successful as a company were, we were inexperienced. The, the buyer, potential buyer, knew that, saw that. You know, the best thing we could have done would have been to hire someone like yourself and, and get professional representation. And you would have known right away, Jeffrey, what are you wasting your time with this? Let's you know, forget it. You know, let me work my magic. I'll put together a competitive bid for you and we'll really see what the company can do. But let me help you along the way, you know, uh, to do a few things before you get there. But no, so it was just ourselves dealing with this one buyer and for everyone else out there, unsolicited offers are the worst thing that, that can happen. You know, they're, they're not the best thing. And there's a reason that buyers love unsolicited offers. People like to get proprietary. It's hard. I think if we take an objective both sides, sometimes it can be a win because they don't have 
the time or energy to run a process themselves. Well, let's talk about let's talk about your process. So you said no to the unsolicited offer. A couple of years go by, and and then what's happening? What did you do in those years in between to prepare the company to sell? You know what, what's interesting about the entrepreneurial journey is if we do it right, we can take what some people would say is a, your biggest loss and turn that into your biggest win. So when we said no to the seven-figure offer, we said yes to mastering the art and science of a liquidity event. And we learned a lot. We learned a lot about where our company wasn't because we saw what the buyer saw. We saw all the shortcomings. Now, in our mind, we knew what the company could do. We just didn't have the right way of sharing that narrative or being able to show the results. And so we reverse engineered the process and we said, okay, Based on what the buyer went through, based on all, as we now call them today, a deep wealth, the skeletons in the closet that the buyer was only too happy to put in our faces. Let's deal with those and let's find all the other ones that weren't found and let's knock them off one by one by one. But let's also speak to other people who have good intentions, who don't want to pick up the company for a song and a dance that can give us some good guidance. So we literally, as the proverbial saying goes with the phoenix rising out of the ashes. That was us. The ashes of saying no to a seven-figure deal. Some people thought we were nuts and we should have done it. We learned from that and we spoke to other people in the M&A world, buyers, sellers, investment bankers, M&A lawyers, strategists, you name it, and people who won big, people who lost big. And we began to put together a playbook or best practices, what we now call the Deep Wealth Nine-Step Roadmap. And we then put that to the test and we tested it on, on ourselves as a company. And what was amazing was preparing for a liquidity event, the same strategies helped our company grow and become more resilient and become that much better. So we still made lots of mistakes along the way. Don't, don't get me wrong. Uh, lots of mistakes. But when we showed up this time to a competitive bid and we the right investment banker at the time and, you know, went through the whole thing. It was a different company and it, you would not have recognized one to the other, but we could not have got there unless we had the so-called failure of saying no to the seven-figure offer. That's very consistent with what I talk a lot about on this show with other entrepreneurs who have been through a process, whether it's a success or a failure, you can kind of see that end in mind, right? Where the process of making your company ready to sell makes it a better company. And it's just, it makes good economic sense to why not work on the skeletons in the closet. And you can maybe share a few examples, whether it's on the financial side, whether it's in competitive marketplace, whether it's processes, the team, there's no short lit, you know, there's an infinite number of things it could be. What were the things that you found Jeffrey, where if you recall, maybe the, the categories or some specific examples of what made the difference? Yeah, where you worked on those skeletons. What were some of those skeletons? Yeah, for sure. And, you know, just a, a quick side note for all the listeners, because it, it's worth mentioning, and I'll talk about the things that made the difference. You know, but Lori, you're incredibly modest. So I'll, I'll just, you know, throw this out there for everyone listening as business owners and speaking, we're all business owners on this call and everyone who's listening from all, you know, one set of business owners to another set of business owners, you cannot master, we cannot master something that we've never done before. And for most business owners, selling a business, that's really something foreign to us. The skills that built our business are not the same skills to sell it. 
Laurie, you know that, and I know that, but some people may not know that. And, and so one of the biggest takeaways was to surround myself with the best, the world-class, absolute best advisors. Laurie, I didn't know you at the time. I probably should have. You would have made that much more of a difference for me back in the day. But for all the listeners, if you're thinking about selling your company, get Laurie on board and have her help you prepare and then do the whole process and the competitive bid. You have one chance. Don't gamble with your future and you want to stack the odds in your favor. You don't want to level the playing field. You want to tilt the playing field. And so that was one thing, Gloria, was surrounding ourselves with really world-class people who had the experience, they had the pedigree, they had the track record to be able to help us. We didn't have that skill set. We relied on them for that. Uh, The other big thing, and this is where a lot of business owners uh, find themselves, the business doesn't run without them. And I don't care if you're a... 20-person company, and you don't have a management team, or you're a 200-person company, and you do have a management team, oftentimes, nothing happens without the owner. And that's a big, big impediment, because buyers want to do two things. They want to, first and foremost, minimize risk. And when they minimize risk, and only when they minimize risk, they're going to maximize the return on investment, and they're really mutually exclusive. So when the business doesn't run without the business owner, so there's no management team that's independent, that's a big red flag. And one of two things will happen. There won't be a deal or the value or the enterprise value, as we like to say. It just gets penalized and it goes down, down, down. So that'd be another example. And I'll round it out with a third one. Um, In Deep Wealth, in in our nine-step roadmap, we call these X factors that insanely increase the value of your business. So what's an X factor? An X factor is an area that a business is world-class in. But the challenge is, so for starters, most businesses have two to three X factors, if not more. But the challenge is that most business owners say, ah, you know, I'm the same as the competition. We all do the same thing. There's really not that big of a deal or a difference. Stop that thinking. It's completely wrong. And no judgments here. But really look within every company's unique. You have your own world-class set of things that you're wonderful in. Your future buyer knows your X factors. They may not know all of them, which I'll get to in a moment, but they're not going to tell you the X factors that they know because if they do, guess what? They're paying more. And so it's like you're going to buy a home. Lori, if I'm walking through your house and it's up for sale, am I going to tell you, Lori, my goodness, this looks like the cover of a magazine and your furniture is terrific and your lawn and layout. I wouldn't change a thing. This is my dream home. Well, if I tell that to you in your mind, you're saying, okay, Jeffrey, pay up. I I got one here. I got one here. There there goes my, I'm going to exceed my asking or Laurie, I'm more likely to tell you, well, yeah, it's a nice house, but there's some issues with it here. I I really got to think about this. I'm looking at a few other houses that I I think meet my needs a little bit better. So I don't know. I, let, let's see where, where that goes. Same thing with a buyer. But when you tell your buyer that you know what your X factors are, number one, the gig is up. They know that you know. But you may also share with them X factors that they never realized. And those X factors you can demonstrate. You can show and tell why those X factors are going to solve a buyer's problem. And the more of a problem that you can solve, the more you're worth to that buyer. Then they get excited. And again, for all of you logical people out there, all your numbers, people out there, I'm going to frustrate you. 
my experience is people make decisions, even buying a company for hundreds of millions of dollars, they make it on emotion first and they will justify it with logic later. And just take me at my word for that or don't. That's been my my experience. When you get your buyer excited through your X factors, another thing we call Rembrandts or other areas that, you know, a lot of them are, are X factors as well. But when you can get a buyer excited through your narrative and through how you position your facts and your data with your X factors and you're in a competitive process and you have someone like Lori who's leading the charge, that's where things really make the difference. And that's where you're getting top dollar. That's awesome. I love how you are helping us understand how to look at the business with the eyes of the buyer. A business that's not transferable is viewed as more risky, which then more risk means lower price, right? A discount, discount applied to the price. So whether it's asking, as you said, with the house, how often are we going to get, I guess it depends on the market, supply demand. If we have really niche, it's well-run company, the team's in place, all these X factors are there, plus others. Yeah, we should get, we should get top dollar. As you heard in the clip of episode 105, Jeffrey Feldberg talked about the importance of knowing your company's X factors, pros and cons of unsolicited offers, and choosing M&A advisors to help you sell the business. If you're like many business owners, valuations and the sell side process isn't your area of expertise. When time is on your side, why not surround yourself with experienced advisors who will work with you to understand your company's value X factors and exit strategies. It's a great lead in to the next clip. Episode 104 is a discussion with two of my colleagues from Stony Hill Advisors, Fred Kaplan and Christy Pozluzny. Episode 104 is the first Succession Stories episode dedicated to the topic of valuations. It's a fantastic 101 to understand the valuation process for companies in the lower middle market. We see time and time again that most business owners don't know the value of their business. It's risky not to know since it may be the largest piece of your net worth. Some owners are not able to recoup their investment when they want to retire because they are out of time. They haven't worked on improving the business, investing in its transferability, attractiveness, or reducing risk factors. I've said this many times during my 100 plus episodes of Succession Stories, and it's worth repeating. You'll want to save episode 104 to your favorites to reference again and again. Let's talk about valuation from the myths or the misnomers. Maybe people don't really have a sense, again, not only what their company is worth, they don't know, but they don't really know what evaluation consists of. So let's talk about that. What have you seen in your experience? Well, one of the, the biggest misnomers is that there's a given multiple for my company. And you may hear this all, all the time. What's my company worth? Is it worth three times EBITDA, four, five times? And, and the answer is there is no single number. There are rules of thumb that will give you guidance as to what are multiples that are common in your particular industry. But those multiples, first, are not necessarily common in a different industry. Just because your next-door neighbor who is a manufacturer sold a business at four times EBITDA does not mean that your service business is worth four times EBITDA. And the second thing is that when you look at 
precedent transactions, the history of deals that were completed in your field, and look at the multiples that were received, you get an average of what the market says your kind of business is worth. But that begs the question, is your business average? Do you, Maybe in every average, there are companies with values above it and below it. And where do you fit? And likely you fit somewhere on that spectrum that is not the average. I think that the biggest myth is when someone hears that, well, recruiting and staffing companies are selling at 4X of, of EBITDA, that really may not be a, a fit with your particular business. That can happen when you go to the golf club and you hear so-and-so sold his or her company and they got this multiple of four times, right? They kind of leave that open-ended four times of what, right? And so how do we even unpack that to know four times of what, what does that even mean? And maybe the audience is wondering what EBITDA means and why that's relevant. And we're going to hold that thought and we'll come to Christy here in a moment. She's going to give us a little bit of insight about the math. Yeah, the other point you made is interesting, which is about where you fit. Have you seen any examples of that, Fred, where one of your clients or maybe in, in your, your experience at Stony Hill where someone surprised you, where they either punched above the weight class because of some other aspects of their business or, or maybe below where you thought they'd be because of some of these other factors? Yes. And typically, these uh, underlying adjustment factors that affect the risk behind the deal are not publicly known. You don't know whether there's a lot of customer concentration and maybe only two customers. Of course, makes that business risky and will lower that valuation. Maybe their employees have a high degree of, of tenure and very low turnover. Well, that would entitle you to a premium. So these are all factors that come out in the valuation methodologies that we use. And you really wouldn't know those details if you were chatting casually with, with someone else. Yeah, it's, it's important to know, I think, where you stand. How often do you find companies should get a valuation? Well, I guess it first starts with what's the purpose. Right? If the purpose is for selling the business, then you want to get a valuation at that time. But you may also need a valuation to set your key person life insurance between partners in a business, or maybe it's related to your profit sharing. I know one business that was actually had an internal financial team doing a quarterly valuation. And I advise them that that was really unnecessarily frequent, that conditions were not changing enough to warrant the time spent on it. So they've moved to a uh, annual, but they use that number for a variety of internal purposes. I'm going to jump over to Christy because we started talking a little bit about some of the the numbers or definitions, and I thought maybe it's a good time to turn it over to you. Why don't you share the process? What's the process of doing a valuation? Yeah, and just to touch on, on some of the things Fred said, it's important to understand that there is a process to the valuation because... A lot of times people will think, oh, just look at my revenue or their their net income and just throw a multiple on that. And that's their value. Other times, you know, business owners will sometimes add premiums to what they think their business is worth due to their blood, sweat and tears that they put into their business over the years. 
However, there is an actual process involved in in determining an appropriate valuation for a business, and it does start with the financials. So in our process, we will always review the business's tax returns as well as the internal financial statements of the business. And we want to analyze this information to understand the trends within the business, understand the business overall in terms of their operations, and ultimately try to arrive at either an SDE number, which is seller's discretionary earnings, or an EBITDA figure, as you mentioned earlier, which is earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. In addition to EBITDA, we will want to have discussions with management to fully understand, again, those trends and some of the operations, because we want to find certain adjustments to those EBITDA numbers. Some of those adjustments will include the owner's compensation and any related benefits or perks, as we like to call them, that are embedded within the business that are directly associated with the owner. Furthermore, we want to understand if there's any extraordinary or non-recurring expenses that may have occurred in the most recent time period, such as a large accounting expense if the company was possibly audited, or a large legal expense if there may have been a settlement. These expenses don't reflect how the business operates in the ordinary course. So we really want to get a good understanding from a financial standpoint. Once we do that, we want to understand the qualitative aspects of the business. As Fred had touched upon, there are a couple of areas within a business that will either increase or decrease the value of a business. Like he said, customer concentration. If they only have two customers versus thousands of customers, that's a lot more risk. If they were to lose one of those two customers, then they lose a significant amount of their business. So that risk is going to decrease their value. However, if they have a a substantial amount of recurring revenue within their business where it's predictable revenue, um, it's coming every single year, like a gym membership every single year, no matter what, that will increase value. So there are a number of different qualitative aspects within the business's operation that we also want to understand to figure the valuation upwards or downwards based on the financial methodologies that we will compute. So once we do all of that analysis, we'll input all of that into our valuation methodologies that we utilize in terms of what's appropriate to use for the company. And then we would impute an overall valuation for the company for them to use for whatever purpose they need. I want to come back to something you said about the owner's discretion on expenses. It's quite common Mm -hmm. in the lower middle market Mm -hmm. for a business owner to run personal expenses through the company. And a lot of times in these tax returns, we see that you know, tax obligations are minimized. Correct. And that is a strategy. And and that's, I think, one of the reasons why when you talked about seller discretionary earnings, we are going through the mechanics of this math, mm-hmm. right? You talked about the 
isolating and what we call the ad backs. What, what expenses would we take out of the business? What revenues might we not count and so on? And we want to try to get to looking at the numbers where a different business owner might make different decisions is how I usually Correct. say it. And this example, maybe you've seen it and it's kind of extreme example. And people kind of shake their heads like, wow, but it's the toilet paper example. Maybe you're running your personal home toilet paper through the business. So you're saving you know, 30 cents on the dollar, but yet maybe you're holding back that value. If our, let's just use three times EBITDA as an example of valuation here, maybe you're holding back the value of $3. Yeah. You know, you're saving 30 cents, but how do you help clients work through that? Yeah. I mean, I mean, listen, when it comes to the tax returns and tax liability, accountants are doing their job. I say it all the time. They're doing their job for you on your behalf to minimize your liability. My job is to undo their job (laughs) because what we ultimately want to do is show what the actual business is doing from a financial performance standpoint. So um, ideally, we would love to have a business owner prepare ahead of time for a suitable valuation by separating their business and personal financial records so that they can show exactly what the business is doing from an expense standpoint. Um, If that's not going to be the case, we will work with the business owner and management to strip those that information out. Because like you said, while they may be saving 30 cents, it is actually decreasing their value because it's ultimately decreasing their cash flow and their valuation is essentially based on cash flow. So like I said, while the accountant is trying to minimize that income figure, I'm trying to maximize it as much as I can. Have you seen that too, Fred, in your experience? I have. Now, most of the business owners I meet are either focused on minimizing their taxes, so finding as many expenses as they can to offset their income, mm-hmm. or they're focused on maximizing current year profits. What I try to do with them is to introduce a third lens, which is a, a value lens, in that if you wanted to buy a business, would you prefer a business that shows no profit because the that's one way many owners manage their business. And of course not. So sometimes it takes a little time. And this is why, in addition to just performing valuations as a moment in time service, we, we at Stony Hill do exit value planning, where we help companies prepare for a future exit that may not even be imminent in order to uh, shift that lens to become a business that make zero profit and pay zero taxes every year to one that makes money and has what I like to call transferable value to, to a buyer, right? Yeah. A business can make no profit and still have value to an owner because of various expenses that are, that are being carried forth and the job that it provides. But as, as Christy said, we need to prepare that business to be uh, a suitable investment for somebody else Mm-hmm. And that means putting on the value lens. What ex- investments might you make now that will have a multiplier effect on the value in the future? For for example, uh, it's another myth that you know having no debt is really good for my business. And while not having debt has many positive uh, values to it, not making investments in your business will be viewed as a negative in the valuation process. 
means you're not preparing for the for the future and you're not you're not building something you're really more treading water and that's not a, what a buyer wants to see a buyer wants to see a, a, a business that is moving forward and that the buyer can take even further forward. Yeah. And it, it's also the same thing, like, like you're saying with debt, with, with taxes, you want to, you, you may have to pay more in taxes for a few years to make sure your books are, are relevant, but the multiple of the value that you're going to get is supersedes what you're going to be paying in taxes for those years. And, and that's what a lot of people don't understand. They, they just, you know, think, well, I don't want to give the government any more money, and neither do I, but I'd like to see a little more in my pocket at the end game. <laughs> We've given a lot of reasons why the process is important. Mm-hmm. Maybe let's talk a little bit about when and, and how. How does this start to happen? So in this context, we were saying it's good to be proactive. Maybe we want to get a baseline of where we are today. Mm-hmm. Fred, you were alluding to this, that maybe we need to, if we have a gap, maybe we have a gap if we want to retire and exit the business and maybe the business we expect it to be selling for $10 million, but today's valuation is really showing it at five, how are we going to double that enterprise value? So Christy, why don't you share from your experience, you know, the process, where does it start and what should an owner do to get a valuation? Well, the first thing you want to do is putting aside, you know, the owner extraordinary expenses. Um, If you're looking to do a valuation today, just to get a baseline of where you're at, the first thing you need to do is absolutely make sure that number one, you have all of your business tax returns completed for the most recent calendar year. I know a lot of businesses will go on extension, um, but before we start any valuation, we need to have the most recent calendar year tax returns done. Um, in addition to that, make sure your books and records internally are um, consistent, prepared well, and organized efficiently. Um, I've seen a number of times where business owners aren't um, really well versed in the financial aspects of their businesses and will record certain line items in inappropriate places. Um, So it's important to have those records to be organized appropriately because we do analyze both sets of data for the valuation. Um, In addition to that, um, you know, you want to really sort of focus a lot on some of the qualitative factors within the the business because those have a significant impact on the valuation. And we'd be happy through additional discussions to go over through our conversations with you in the valuation process, what some of those qualitative factors are, how they are positive to your valuation, and while some of them may be negative as to where you can make improvements upon And Fred, from your perspective, what do you think listeners should take action on if they want to get ready? Uh, In addition to having your books and records current, there needs to be attention paid to planning. Because when a buyer buys a business, they're not buying history as much as they're buying your future cash flows. So the seller should have projections of the future cash flows that are reasonable and substantiated so that uh, the valuation uh, consultant would be able to use those in our projections of the value of that business. Uh, I also see that the qualitative factors are are, are very important. Uh, As Christy said, some will bear a discount to the arithmetic 
a part of the valuation. Some will, will generate premiums. Uh, so it's very important to understand what are the value drivers of your business and of, and of your industry. They're not necessarily the same for everyone. Who is your most important customer? The person who buys your business. Stony Hill Advisors works with owners to maximize the value when you're ready to sell. Get started today with a business valuation by visiting stonyhilladvisors.com slash podcast. To reiterate takeaways from episode 104, in the Succession Stories podcast, we encourage business owners to understand what are the value drivers and risk factors of your business and your industry. Looking at your business through the lens of a buyer is critical because we need to understand our transferable value. What would make the value of the business go up or down based on these factors? Is there anything we can do to better position our exit value? How can we position the company for an exit in the future? The final clip in today's Succession Stories Rewind is from episode 107. It's about hidden risk factors from a business and personal identity perspective. As a researcher, Rebecca Monet found a market problem to solve and built a compelling business around the solution. 